Welcome back to membership class. We're going to study the Lord's Supper. So a couple weeks ago, we studied the sacraments, which informs this tonight. And then we had the continuation of baptism last week. And uh, now, uh, yes, thanks, Gabriel. You can give that to Mrs. Renner. Thank you. Yeah, we have an extra one, so that's up to you. Um, Mrs. Renner, would you like an extra copy? Because we have an extra copy. Okay, go ahead and bring it back. She would like an extra copy. Nothing wrong with that. It's just going to sit on the bench. Gabriel, go ahead and bring it back, buddy, please. Yeah, Because you already have it in your booklet, right, Mama? Okay. All right. Come around this side. Sneak around him. <laughs> okay. So um, Matthew chapter 26. I want to read uh, part of you know, what we read. Uh, we've been reading through this the last couple weeks in the evening for our worship time going through the New Testament. And I, it's really great timing because that's where we are this evening. Uh, let me see here. Let, let me go ahead and just uh, read most of chapter 26 for a reference point tonight. And one thing I want you to recognize is, are they calling it the Lord's Supper or are they calling it something else? That's significant uh, in terms of what's happening here and the overlap of Old and New Testament. Okay? Hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew 26. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests, and said unto them, What will ye give me? and I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith at thy house, excuse me, the master saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish the same shall betray me. 
The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny, deny thee. Likewise also said all of the disciples. Uh, I won't continue, but now he's going to be vexed in his soul in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Judas will show up uh, and uh, have, have, get, will give him over with the Judas kisses, you know. Uh, that whole context is really significant to remembering all the significance and uh, depth of the Lord's Supper, but we'll leave it at that for now, just uh, for sake of time. Again, tonight we are studying the Lord's Supper, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, and I remi- want to remind you that chapter 27, which discusses the sacraments first more broadly, is really important to inform this, just as it was important to f- inform our study on baptism. Uh, The Lord's Supper. I have a, starting on page 90 of the notes of the class, uh, I have a quote for you here from R.C. Sproul just to kind of introduce the discussion. He writes this, when we examine life in the first century Christian community, even apart from the passages of the New Testament, it is clear that the celebration of the Lord's Supper was central to the worship of the people of God. What's more, he says, it is the central symbol of the Christian religion. That's really important to be thinking about. I think Protestants have downplayed the Lord's Supper so much. Uh, maybe sometimes a pendulum swing against away from the Catholic Church and what they do with it. But in the early church, and you see in the scriptures, there's no doubt that the Lord's Supper was central to the experience of worship and the identity of the Christian church. And uh, hopefully we'll bear that out and uh, how important it is, why it's so important to be a regular part of our life. I think when it says it was central to the worship of the people of God, I'm not sure that is something that would be said of the modern church today, Protestant churches. I, I often, when I've been other churches, it's very rare that you see them celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, there are different views on frequency, but especially, I would argue, certain churches that have brought in so many other kinds of things, the main things of worship have been kind of crowded out. And uh, may it be central here, may it be central here, as it is in the Church of the New Testament. 
Well, let's start with section 1 of chapter 29 in the notes. I'll read for you the Confession of Faith, chapter 29, section 1. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement uh, in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. One thing I want to highlight in this section, it says, unto true believers. Now remember, this is a sacrament for the visible church, but it's truly effectual. and has its true meaning for those who are in the invisible church where the visible church ministers. Now, let me explain this section a bit. Communion is a sacrament because the Lord Jesus instituted as such in his church. I underline his. This is his church. So we do what Jesus says. We emphasize and focus on what he has made central to the worship and identity and government and life of the church. That's really important today. It's his church we have to remember. It's not our church. Oh, we'll refer to it as my church. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Just a sense of our identity with it, right? But we remember it's actually his church. We do only what he tells us to do. This overlaps and relates to the chapter on worship and the regulative principle. Recognize it's his church. He instituted it. He ordained it. That's why we do it. As I've explained before, a lot of times when I'm doing the Lord's Supper, it's serving the Lord's Supper. I'm always wanting to make sure to remember the words. I'm focusing on serving and the administration of it that I don't have the same opportunity to just meditate during the service and and really take it in. And uh, I have to trust, especially as we do it regularly, I have to trust that it actually really is uh, working because Jesus said to do it. You know, uh, our faith can be less or more or depending on the week or the day, you know, we might wonder, should we do something else? We do what Jesus said to do and we trust it's used by him because he said to do it. He's going to bless his ordinances. This is an order of the Lord Jesus. It is always highlighted that the last meal of fellowship ended with betrayal. We always remember that in the Lord's Supper. You'll hear that in the language of introducing the Lord's Supper. To begin the process of redemption by his body and blood. We remember he was betrayed to go and die on the cross for us. And you saw that in the context of what we read in Matthew 26. The supper is a, quote, remembrance or memorial of what Jesus has done for us. So you see on the table here, it's not, it's not an altar, it's a table. There's no sacrifice, right? And it says, this do in remembrance of me, which is what Jesus says, remembering what he has done. It's a table of fellowship because of his once and for all sacrifice. But we are remembering how easily we forget, right? Not only his commands, but his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness to his covenant and his promises. And so it's a regular reminder touching all of our senses that he's faithful Uh, to the covenant, the everlasting covenant in his blood. Back to the notes. Uh, Yet it is for our spiritual nourishment and growth in him, it says. And that because it is a seal of the benefits Christ assures us of in our living covenant union and communion with him. It's a seal, it's a confirmation, uh, it's a reminder of things. 
It also is a constant engaging affirmation of our pledge to him and his people. Quote, every time the Christian partakes of the Lord's Supper, he renews the oath taken in baptism to be the Lord's. That's Benjamin Green. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're to be remembering to improve our baptism, as we talked about before. Uh, we always remember that that's what, it, that's what baptism is. It's identifying us as Christ's. We are his. We are the church. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, it reminds us who we are and therefore how we are to live and how we are to be. It is perpetual to see us through together until the end. Perpetual means ongoing. It's not a one-time thing, but you're to be regularly doing it. Now, we'll think about that as it relates to you don't just eat. Say, oh, that was a great meal. I'm good for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> you're not going to live that way. Uh, quote, there is a clear connection between this communion and the communion of saints, says Wayne Spear. So it isn't just a vertical thing, although you want to really be thinking of Christ here in our midst, although it's also bringing us up to him, really. Um, it's really more bringing us up to him, but it's a vertical thing in a sense of thinking of our fellowship with the Lord, but it's also a horizontal thing. It's not just an individual thing. It is a corporate thing, and 1 Corinthians 10 speaks about that, that uh, we are the bread, right? We are the bread of the Lord. Uh, it sometimes is called the Eucharist. Now, that might make you nervous because it sounds very Catholic or Anglican, but it's because it's based on the Greek word eucharisteo, which means to give thanks or thanksgiving. You see, the Lord's Supper is a ceremonial meal that celebrates life. Now, it commemorates his death, but we remember it. Why? Because it tells us we have eternal life in him. So his death gives us life, and he's resurrected from the dead. Um, but so uh, when it's called the Eucharist, I don't really have a problem with that, or at least I like that it reminds us of the Greek, which means thanksgiving. We should be thankful when we come to the Lord. Now, that can be expressed in sorrow, sorrow for our sins, but also joy. So thankful to be forgiven of our sins, right? I'm kind of skipping ahead to some Thomas Watson notes, quotes at the end there. So, um, And as it does, as we celebrate our life taking the Lord's Supper, it not only looks back, but it is here looking, and it is looking ahead. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he come, right? 1 Corinthians 11. Chad Van Dixhorn notes, quote, the meal so often called the Last Supper was really the First Supper. That's really important. We want to remember that. We'll, we'll, I know in the notes I'll develop this, so I'll stick to the notes for now. J.I. Packer explains, the prescribed ritual of the supper has three levels of meaning for participants. First, it has a past reference to Christ's death, which we remember. Second, it has a present reference to our corporate feeding on him by faith, with implications for how we treat our fellow believers, 1 Corinthians 11, 20-22. Third, it has a future reference as we look ahead to Christ's return and are encouraged by the thought of it. So just as we assemble on the Lord's Day, we take the Lord's Supper, commemorating his death, burial, and resurrection, and looking forward to his return, of course, because he's been ascended. So there's an anticipatory thing. There's a looking back to remember what he's done. There's a thinking of the present reality of who we are in him because of it. And there's an anticipata anticipating of his return and having the, the, enjoying the, uh, the great supper of the Lamb in the future. Uh, section 2 of chapter 29 at the bottom of page 190. Let me read for you. In this sacrament, Christ is now offered up to his Father. Excuse me, not. I want to make sure I've emphasized that clearly. 
In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or dead, but only a commemoration of of the offering upon himself, by himself, upon the cross, once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Okay, well, we're getting into what we'll deal with in several questions tonight. As is often the case, the Westminster Standards will be teaching against the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, remember their context is wanting to reform and be less Anglican, less keeping of the ceremonies of the Roman Catholic Church, not just reformed in doctrine, but reform in practice that better communicates that doctrine is more biblical. So there's, there's often a teaching against Roman Catholic practices, and that's what they're doing. They're teaching against the mass and the superstitions. They say the popish mass. Uh, they're referring to the Roman Catholic Church here. So again, I point to this table, and it's not called an altar. And I think too many Protestants, especially when they refer to an altar call, there's no altar. There should be no reference to an altar in a Protestant church. Right? There's no more sacrifice. <laughs> There's only an, an altar is what you sacrifice something on. And Christ is not continually sacrificed. And that's related to the idea of transubstantiation. But let me get to the notes explaining this section. Uh, top of page 191. Christ is the final high priest, and his offering of himself was the true and final sacrifice. What did he say on the cross to the, at the end? What, does he say, what did he say? It is finished. It's done. He's done what he came to do, right? Um, His name was Jesus because he saved his people from their sins. His cross work is finished. There is no more offering for sin, Hebrews 10, 18. There is now no altar but a table. There is no place for the ongoing popish mass. That understands the Lord's Supper to be a literal, ongoing sacrifice to pay for sins. They believe every time they're having the Lord's Supper, they're literally sacrificing Christ in some way. really doesn't make any sense logically. We'll talk about it, but there's a lot of things related to this superstitious behavior because of it. Um, But also notice the word the Mass. That is related to the word Christmas, you see. Uh, That's why we don't do it. (laughs) Mainly, there's no biblical warrant for it, but notice it is connected to the word Mass. Okay. Um, Christ offered himself at one time for all time. There was no room for repetition of any kind, says R.C. Sproul. The Lord's Supper is only a commemoration. It is a memorial of Jesus' final sacrifice to truly pay for our sins. Jesus did not give salvation to his disciple in the Lord's Supper. They were saved by faith in him. He gave them the supper to feed their faith as they were about to lose him. Quote, it showed them what they possessed, and it testified to them that they did possess it. Ken Golden explains, the Holy Spirit works through the word to create faith, while the Spirit works through the sacraments to confirm faith. So we want to recognize that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is not something that's creating faith. It's not something that saves a person. It's only something for a saved person. It confirms and assures them in the faith. 
but it doesn't create faith. It's not that it isn't a witness. It's not that it isn't a picture sermon, as we'll see. But it's only the word and the preaching of the word, however much that sacrament supports that preaching, uh, that the Lord saves someone. The Lord's Supper doesn't do anything for an unbeliever, and it doesn't save them. It doesn't save anyone. It is simply uh, something that uh, encourages them. It doesn't create the faith. It confirms the faith. Okay? Uh, Section 3, chapter 29. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. There's a number of things there. I'll start to explain King Jesus ordained this sacrament for his church and also set apart his ministers only to set apart the elements in worship for holy and orderly use. This is another indication of the three office view of church government. Now I'm just alluding to this discussion that I'll share a little bit more about in the section on church government coming up next week. But that general understanding is that there is a distinct office of minister-preacher who has an overlapping uh, duty of governing the church. Then there are elders. Now, a lot of churches say there's just two offices, elders and deacons, and some elders are teachers, teaching elders. But that's not what the standards teach, You know, although a lot of Presbyterians don't seem to recognize it. The Dutch Reform, they're pretty consistent and got this right, but this is three-office view. Um, uh, there's the, the minister, there is the elder who governs with the other elders and the pastor, they have an overlapping duty, but the elders do not preach and teach the word. And then there is the deacon. Okay, um, I want you to just see, as we've been seeing that on baptism, there's this emphasis on only the minister does these things. Okay, Now, normally, the elders aren't people uh, that are usually argued should be doing the sacraments. They recognize that's only for an ordained minister. But that's where I think there's a little bit of blurriness on the topic, because that should relate also to the issue of the preaching of the word. Um, but notice that there is a distinct understanding this is only the work of a minister. Of course, that recognizes it shouldn't be the work of anyone not ordained as a minister to do the work. No, no regular person should be doing this. Um, regular person is a pretty weird way to say it. But uh, uh, though we're all part of the priesthood, so to speak, uh, we're not all uh, ministers. Okay, But also, not the minister's... While they have a ruling effort, they're not in the same office of elders. I just want to point that out to you as we go on. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it now. Top of page 192. They are to, cl- to declare his word of institution to the people. For the sa- and notice, that rec- notice that connection there with the ministers. They don't only administer the sacrament, they declare it. Right? There's always the declaring of its meaning with the word of God. Really close connection with preaching generally. For the sacraments are not independent of the word. We don't just have the Lord's Supper without any declaration of what it means. Okay? Still, as with baptism, the Lord's Supper is meant to be complementary to the word and meet our human needs for physical reminders of spiritual realities. Quote, the Lord's Supper is a visible sermon wherein Christ crucified is set before us. Thomas Watson, the Ten Commandments. Pretty sure I have that as a redundancy in the quotes at the end tonight. The Lord's Supper exhibits salvation, the confession says. 
It doesn't give it, but it exhibits it. It reminds us of our salvation and the means of it through Christ, right? We're remembering his shed body and blood on the cross and how, therefore, he has saved us. So the Lord's Supper, uh, I like how, I think I mentioned this in the section on the sacraments, Richard Phillips says, we have drama in worship. We don't need theater. We already have drama. It's the sacraments, and particularly, it's the Lord's Supper. If we give proper attention to it in frequency and we prepare ourselves properly to partake of it, which it'll talk about tonight. Beloved, when we remember every week how Jesus Christ gave himself practically naked to be beat to a bloody pulp, to be nailed hand and feet to a wooden cross that he had to carry on his beat up back and couldn't do it and had to have somebody else help him. He was so beat up and then allowed to bleed to death, suffocating on the cross with the wrath of God from heaven falling upon him in our place. And he cries, he's thirsty, he's struggling, and then he suffocates to death, and then they stick him in the side, and all the blood comes out. And all these things are fulfilling prophecy. If we're not moved by that, what's wrong with us? That should be moving because that is why we are saved. Every week we remember what he did to pay for our sins because that should be you and me forever in hell suffering like that. And what a drama before us with the Lord's Supper. If, we, if we're prepared properly by our leadership and preparing one another, preparing ourselves for it, preparing our children even to recognize what it means, we remember, just like we have these memorial days remembering those who died in war for us, we remember what they did in their sacrifice for us. And it's important and meaningful, right? It's a weekly memorial of what Jesus did for us to save us so we could live, okay? Um, it's a visible sermon. The Lord's Supper exhibits salvation. It visibly reminds us of Christ's body was beaten for us and his blood was shed for us. Quote, this is my body which was broken for you. Now we know the bones were not broken in fulfillment of prophecy, but essentially broken. Broken down anyways, right? When the confession speaks of not bringing the Lord's Supper to those not in the congregation, it focuses on queens who had private masses with private priests, completely contradictory to the supper, what it is, a New Testament communal gathering of the Old Testament Passover feast. Yeah, at that time, a lot of the royal folks, they had their own private priest, their own private room, almost like a little, uh, what do you call it, a chapel or something, and kind of kept away and had their own private uh, Lord's Supper. And they're particularly teaching against that. One thing I'd like to explore with the session at some point, and um, I, I don't know a lot about this, but I've wondered, would it be appropriate... As for a session to go with other members of a church to someone who's shut in and will be shut in uh, to administer it. I, I, I like and favor the idea of it. I'm not sure if this speaks to that or if there is anything. Uh, I, that's something I want to research and think about. But I would be cautious because of this. But what it's particularly referring to is people who could be there, but because of their royalty and, ability and op opportunity, they got their own private priest and they, they have their own private mass. And that's what they're speaking against. That is not what the Lord's Supper is about, okay? Uh, section 4 of chapter 29. I think I just want to reiterate, that's me wondering out loud about something I haven't yet studied. I am not making any kind of statement. It's just a wondering, in case you might be wondering. Section 29, uh, chapter 29, 29, section 4. 
private masses or receiving this sacrament by a priest or any other alone as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or uh, contrary to the, or, or carrying them, excuse me, carrying them about for adoration and the reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. This is all uh, mostly Catholic, Roman Catholic practices uh, that they are dealing with at that time. Much of it, to my understanding, remains. Private masses are particularly condemned, as well as in denying the people the partaking of wine, which became the practice of the Roman Catholic Church because they were concerned that the layman might spill the blood of Christ on the floor of the church. Now, I don't think that's a common practice anymore, but at this time, uh, they didn't allow the common people to drink the wine, only the priest did, because they were afraid they'd spill it on the floor. And because they think it's the literal blood of Christ, they don't want to risk it, right? That's why you hear the story of Martin Luther when he was going to give his first Lord's Supper, and I think his dad came, although he wasn't crazy about Martin Luther doing this. At least in the movie, you see him, like, shaking. I think he might have even spilled it because he's so, like, freaked out that he's, like, literally got the body and blood of Christ in his hands, right? You know, so... Because they believe that so strongly, there can be no uh, risk of the common people spilling the blood. But of course, that's ridiculous, and it is for the people, and it's not the literal blood of Christ, but that's what they're dealing with. Uh, back to the notes, turning on to page 193. The various examples of worshiping the elements in this section condemned are all related to the Roman Catholic Church. So the idea of you know, the venerating of the elements, holding them up, walking up and down, well, they believe it's God. Right, They believe it's Jesus Christ, so they actually intend that you would be worshiping these elements. And uh, be, that's being denied here. It should not surprise us, though, that such idol worship evolves within a belief system of transubstantiation. We'll talk more about that word in a moment, but that is the Catholic view and practice of the Lord's Supper. It's called transubstantiation. That's what's being rejected. Uh, holding the bread and wine to truly become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, nor that priests get drunk on leftover wine because they may not pour down the drain what has now become Christ's blood. Yeah, they have to drink it all. It's Christ's blood. It can't be treated in an unholy way, so to speak. Uh, you know. And uh, I, I don't know if this is why, but I have a memory. My mom shared that uh, when my uncle, now deceased, married his wife, he was Methodist, she was Catholic. They were going to get married in the Catholic Church, but they couldn't because the priest was drunk. And they were all crying outside that they couldn't get a Catholic uh, wedding. And I think they ended up going to the Methodist Church and got married. I'm pretty sure some of the Catholics stayed outside and cried about it, if I understand the story right. I don't know if this is why, but maybe it's because he drank too much of the most recent communion. I don't know. Or because of that... I mean, if you've got to drink whatever's left, if it's a lot, you know, it could be a dangerous of developing drunkenness. I don't know. Um, it's interesting to, the, 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 the memory comes to mind here. It's interesting to consider. But it shouldn't surprise us when they do behavior like this, when they believe it's the body and blood of Christ. Right? I mean, that's a logical conclusion when you think about it. Right? Um, Ken Golden points out, what should happen to the leftovers in the Roman Catholic ceremony? They must be worshipped. The adoration of the Eucharist takes the, takes the transubstantiation to its logical conclusion. Again, we approach a table, not an altar. There's no sacrifice going on here. 
There's a, there's a remembering. Now, some of you may be waiting for me to make a distinction between Zwingli um, and uh, most of the reformers. I'm going to have a really long footnote at the end if you want to look into it, okay? You're hearing a lot of language about memorial and ceremony, and there are going to be some things said here that say it's more than that. Um, but uh, in case you're wondering and waiting for it, I'll, I'll give you a little something, but I won't get into it too much. I'll give you what you need if you want to look into it more. Um, more importantly, the mistaken understanding of the nature of the supper is why Catholics believe salvation is through the ongoing infusion of Jesus dying for them. So there is no salvation without this continually repeated sacrificial drip. They've got to get back and have more of the Lord's Supper. They've got to get more of that IV drip for salvation. Thus, to the extent that Rome persuades men to believe her doctrine, she also persuades men to abandon legitimate hope. That's G.I. Williamson. By the way, most Catholics will logically never say that they know that they are going to heaven. Yeah, talk to your most, most Roman Catholics, and if they're consistent, they don't have assurance of salvation. It's dependent on all of these things that are never done, right? Okay, section 5, chapter nine, 29, section 5. The outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. It's always bread and wine. It's never not bread and wine. When we bless the elements because Christ did and ask the Lord's blessing on it, just like we do any meal we have, though this is a special holy one, the bread and wine stay bread and wine. It's, they are symbols. Uh, and I'm going to get into more things about this. Uh, but remember we talked about in the section on the sacraments, the thing, the sign, and the thing signified. The sign and the thing signified. They can't be the same thing or it's no longer a sign. It's the thing, right? So if it's the body, then it can't be a sign or bread. It's, you know. Uh, okay, let me explain this section. This section relates to chapter 27, 2, in that the scriptures speak figuratively of the sacraments. We read the Bible, quote, literally, uh, literarily, excuse me. We read the Bible literarily as all literal truth, but not infrequently through metaphorical language. So it depends. Some of the scripture's narrative, and while Matthew 26 is narrative, often there are figurative expressions. Like when Jesus says, I am the door, do people start trying to twist his elbow and walk through him? Come on, right? When he said, uh, I am uh, the resurrection and the life. That's true. He's the means of the resurrection, but he wasn't you know, bringing everybody up through this literal thing happening at the time, though there will be that by him. I'm trying to think of some of the other things. What are some of the other things he says about himself? I am the true vine, right? John 15. Does anybody actually think that Jesus is saying, I am literally a vine? No. We understand it is a metaphorical thing. And so when he says, this is my body, everybody understands this is a metaphor, Okay. Um, when we speak of the body and blood of Jesus, uh, knowing it is a figurative expression, just as we understand that Jesus is not a literal door or a vine or a shepherd. I guess I could have stuck to the notes. There it is. <laughs> Reformed Protestants believe that Christ is spiritually present in the supper, but only spiritually. 
that sentence is kind of what there can be a lot more discussion about, but I'm going to hold off for now. Remember that the first Lord's Supper should inform how we understand the subsequent ones. Jesus said, this is my body, but he ate of it himself. And, ate, and it was only bread off the table. It was not flesh off his arm. And I don't mean to be too gross or graphic, but just to make the point, he wasn't passing his arm around, right? He was passing bread around in the first Lord's Supper. As well, he said, this is my blood, but it was wine that he and the disciples drank out of an earthen vessel, not from his veins. Such continues to be the case. As well, the elements are not important alone, but in the action of partaking of them together. Quote, the essence of the sacrament consists in the eating and drinking. That's A.A. Hodge. It is the virtue of what was purchased for us by Christ's body and blood that is present and fed upon. It's the virtue of what he's established for us. We're feeding upon that in faith, right? Now, uh, I just want to remind you again that what is most important is not the elements, but the partaking together. The, my action, your actions, as we remember together what Jesus did for us, and we feed on the virtue and reality of that spiritually. And the Spirit of Christ, not the body, but the Spirit of Christ with us, ministering. Chapter 29, 6. So let me just say, what that thing is reminding you is, don't fear. When I say, this is the body of Christ, the elders will now serve you the body of Christ. They'll now serve you the blood of Christ. And by the way, they're serving in the sense of, I'm asking them to bring it to you. I'm the one administering. Uh, but they're bringing it to you. Uh, uh, the minister is the one ministering is what I'm intending to say. Uh, notice that I'm really thinking that you should be understanding, basing on all of our training, I'm speaking figuratively, just as Jesus was speaking figuratively. I am not intending for you to understand this is literally Christ's blood or that it is literally his bread. And I am pretty confident you all have a good understanding of that. But it's funny, sometimes when I say it, I feel a little funny, like, I mean, you know, you know I'm speaking figuratively, right? But, but I don't want to explain it away because it's supposed to have that power about what those symbols represent. So I don't explain it away. We, when I set it up, I tell you these are the sacramental symbols, and I remind you it's figurative, okay? But then I let the language be the language of the sacrament by Christ. Did you have a question, Reba? Yeah. So figuratively, mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it was water. Water, really? Okay. I've never heard of that. It does matter. Um, and it's a great question. Can you remind me to point some things out for further reading at the end? I do touch on this, but I don't give a lot of time to it. When, when I was first here and we started getting ready to have the Lord's Supper again, we talked about different things like frequency. We studied a lot of things before we began. Um, and uh, one of them was, should we offer wine, grape juice, or both? Sometimes they call it a split cup in certain denominations. There's a lot of debate about it. There's grape juice and wine. Pick. I've never heard of water being offered. Uh, that's for baptism. <laughs> you know. I, okay, let, let's, let me answer it this way. All right, let me just answer as quickly as I can. I believe it has to be wine. Grape juice is not what it was. And grape juice doesn't represent what the wine represents. Okay? 
Psalm 104 speaks of the Lord giving us wine that gladdens the soul. And uh, participating of this should be making us thankful and glad, right? We're not talking about being drunk, but there'd be no command in the scriptures not to get drunk if we weren't supposed to touch it at all, right? Um, You have those questions that might come up. There was a person that was going to partake with us once who, um, visiting, who had an allergic, who had an allergy to something in wine. Well, in that case, we'd probably make some kind of an exception. In her church, they did not. She never had it. I think we'd try to somehow offer her something. We're not likely to accommodate people who just need to not have certain habitual sins. We're not going to let uh, the abolitionists uh, change it on us, you know. Um, that's not the right word, is it? What's the word? Uh, no, that's not the right word. I always get them mixed up. They're both with an A. But there was a movement in America where alcohol was illegal, right, for a while. And I know that was a real encringement on church and the Lord's Supper and stuff. I, I can't think of the word. Um, I'll have it in the shower. <laughs> if anybody thinks of it, let me know. But it was that other movement for a while. And it was a Christian movement, but it was a mistaken one. Um, the elements matter. He was taking wine. He was taking bread, right? Uh, so, for instance, how far do you go with it? I've heard of churches having cookies and Kool-Aid, you know. Uh, just as the water matters. And let me get back to that. You know how we talked about, one second, Gabriel. Uh, what, uh, you know how we talked about how the meaning and the mode matters with baptism? So it has to be water. It can't be sand, for instance. It can't be mixed with oil, right? And, and that's what it was. It was clearly water. And so we follow the example uh, related to the regular principle, but the mode also has meaning, and the elements have meaning. Okay. But uh, at the end of the study, I have a lot of articles about that question. So I'm kind of cutting to the chase, showing the cards, but... There's a lot of articles that we provide to read to see why we've come to that conclusion. Yeah, great, great question. Um, let's see. Did I? Where did I leave off? I'm sorry. I'm old. I can't remember. Did I start section six yet? No. no. Okay. I finished. Um, okay. Great. Okay. That was a great question. Thank you. Uh, section six of chapter twenty-nine. The doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant. That's a pretty strong word. Horrible. Not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. Ah, notice that. They appeal to common sense and reason, right? Overthroweth the, uh, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. This idea that when they bless the bread and wine, it becomes literally the body and blood of Jesus is ridiculous, they're saying. It's not scriptural, it leads to all kinds of idolatry, and it removes the whole point of the sacrament and its meaning. So most directly here, they're teaching against transubstantiation, Literally, it means across the substance, as Ken Golden tells us. Uh, It's taught against here the belief that bread and wine change completely into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ and are consumed as such. So they really believe in the Roman Catholic Church. It's the body and blood of Christ. And when you eat it and drink it, you're literally eating the physical body and blood of Christ. That's what they teach. This is what is namely wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. Quote, the mass... That is their version of the Lord's Supper. The Mass is the heart of Romanism. And idolatry is the heart of the Mass. That is Williamson. Uh, 
Notice the appeal to common sense and reason, which are vital in the Christian faith to rule out such error. Sadly, Reformed folk are suspicious of logic in recent times, and this plays into wanting to overemphasize Christ's presence somehow mystically in the elements, rather than focus on Christ present in the spiritual feasting with us. If we throw out reason, we lose the entire nature of the sacrament, a remembrance, paragraph one, and a commemoration, paragraph two. Whatever we want to talk about understanding the presence of Christ truly, we want to recognize what it mainly is. It's a, memory, it's a memorial, it's a commemoration of what he has done, and therefore the life we have in him. Okay, uh, Section seven. Worthy receivers. Now notice that word worthy again, and true believers as it was earlier. This is a visible sacrament, but we recognize it only actually is effectual for those who are true and worthy believers. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Now when, it's, when it deals with the idea of being uh, it's not carnally in, with, or under the bread. That's kind of speaking more to Lutherans, and we'll talk about that, and consubstantiation. Um, so where the receivers partaking of this sacrament actually do benefit. And that's something we want to remember. It's really the whole point. I mean, we do it because Christ commands, but we want to recognize there's a real, true benefit in the partaking of it. While it is a memorization, while it is a commemoration, Christ has meant and ordained it as a means of grace. Okay. Um, worthy receivers, uh, bottom of page 194, worthy receivers actually benefit spiritually from the supper of thanksgiving by feeding their faith. Christ's body is not in, with, or under the elements. This is teaching against Lutheran consubstantiation, literally with the substance. And Luther's concept of the ubiquity of Christ's body, which kept the Reformed and Lutherans from uniting in the Marburg Colloquy. So let me just explain that real briefly. Uh, the Lutherans, you might be surprised, I was kind of surprised to learn, they kind of believe the same idea of Christ is literally present in the elements. I don't know if you know that about Lutherans. The, really the main distinction, and it may be a little more complicated than this, but the main distinction is the Roman Catholics believe they're actually re-sacrificing him every time. Uh, but, but still, the Lutherans, they, they believe in consubstantiation. The ubiquity of Christ's body is everywhere. Uh, how is that possible, right? Christ's body can't be everywhere if it's a true human body. Similarly, the problem with, I think this is in my footnotes, Lutherans therefore believe, Martin Luther anyways, uh, that everybody is truly partaking of Christ in the supper, even non-Christians if they're there taking of it. Because if it's literally his body and blood, then it has to be that all partake of Christ. But as you're recognizing, only worthy believers, true Christians, actually have any benefit. For those who are not true Christians, they get nothing of it. Okay, and we'll see some pretty powerful quotes by Thomas Watson in the end. Uh, the Marburg Colloquy, what happened was Martin Luther 
and you know his geographic area and how the Reformation developed. And of course, we celebrate Reformation Sunday, October 31st, the nailing of the 95 Thesis, right, on the door of Wittenberg. Hey, Gideon, it's great to have you, but you're not teaching. I'm teaching tonight, okay? Yeah, you stay there, okay? <laughs> he wants to touch it. Um, there you go. Go sit down. Um, so uh, I just did that because he's going to come up and run on the stage probably if I don't. Um, the Marlboro Colloquy, Luther meets with a bunch of the reformers. My understanding is friend Mel- Melanchthon uh, really was wishing this could have happened. But they were looking to be able to say how they could be one in, in united practice more formally. But Luther showed up. He wrote, he, he had something under a cloth of the table and in the discussion, this is like for him, Luther could be pretty strong-minded and sometimes to a fault, uh, like, like any of us can. And he pulled the cloth off of the table and he had written on it. I'm not sure if it was on paper or inscribed, I don't recall. This is my body. And he insisted, if you don't believe that it's really his body and you ignore what he actually says, then you are not taking the Lord's Supper. And he refused to have any kind of formal uh, connection because of this view. He, they pretty much walked out. They couldn't have any gathering of people in some more formal fellowship because of this view they had of the Lord's Supper. They believe this is literally his body. And the reformer says, no, it's not literally his body. And he insisted. He had it prepared on the table, and that was it. He, he came ready to walk out. You know, and that's not really coming to have a real discussion. But And this isn't to dismiss or speak poorly of Luther. He's a huge father of the present faith for us. Um, but this is an area that I think is a more sad part of his history. Uh, but it, it shows you this distinction of views, okay? And what the, what the standards are teaching against here. Uh, but Christ's body and blood are really spiritually present to the faith of true believers. Notice the parallel. Wine and bread feed the mouth and stomach of the physical body. Christ's spiritual benefits feed our faith, but not our mouth. You see the parallel. Uh, the, the, the spiritual benefits of what the bread and wine represent, okay? It's the participation, it's the practice of how Christ feeds us. Jesus is present in the supper, but not as the host, lower est, in the meal, but the capital H, host of the meal. He's the one serving us. He's the one serving us, okay? Christ, uh, just as he's literally actually the one preaching through the earthen vessel, Christ was not physically present in the elements of the Lord's Supper, but he was physically present at the Supper, you see. Similarly, while Jesus is not present in the elements of our worship, he is spiritually present with us, serving the meal and reminding us of our union and communion with him by the Spirit. Quote, The Lord invites us to share a meal with him as a pledge of his love to us in Christ. Now that's Wayne Spear. Christ's perfect personal union of his two natures that remain distinct is important to keep in view, with his human nature remaining in heaven while his divine nature is with us on earth. He's with us as God, eternal God in the spirit. He's with us. And the thing is, let's not minimize that, right? Just as he's with us in our presence in the rest of the worship service, he's with us with the Lord's Supper, okay? Uh, let's see here. I lost my place. Again. Thank you. Again, are you asking me to read the sentence again? Just teasing. Okay. <laughs> again, the next sentence. Again, Jesus began the Lord's Supper at a Passover feast, 
When one studies it along with temple sacrifices, it is seen that God is having a meal with his people in his house after a sacrifice was made. By the way, uh, Ken Golden, I just can't bring everything from the notes, but I was reviewing his book, which is published by the Alliance, my other employer. Um, uh, he talks a lot in the first chapter about this is a meal with God, and he reminds us, like in what we just read in Exodus 24, that the elders went with Moses to have a meal with God. Had to keep their distance, but there was the sprinkling of the bread. You know, we're having a meal with God, and the tabernacle. Uh, a lot of times, the, the priests were to eat a part of it. There's there's this sense of having communion with God that's being expressed by the meal. That's why it's called fellowship communion. Okay. Uh, similarly, we share a meal with God in his house because of the final sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who hosts the meal in our presence. Christ feeds your inner soul by use of these outward signs and senses. Make sure to come prepared with a gracious appetite of faith to develop a deeper spiritual taste each time. Section 8, and this is the last section, and then I'll give you some nice uh, Thomas Watson quotes to close with. And uh, Maripa, help me remember to address your question a little bit more, if nothing else, than to draw your attention to some of the specific articles on it, okay? Uh, Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in this sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby, but by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, without great, uh, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or, notice this, be admitted thereunto. Now this is going to explain why we do what we call fence the table, but the thing is, when we don't allow visitors partake, we're not necessarily identifying them as wicked. It's just we don't know them. We've got to know they're in the visible church. We're going to see that. That's required. We've got to know they've been baptized. That's required. Um, they've got to be a member of the visible church. And uh, we've got to make sure that they're not in some heinous sin. 1 Corinthians 11 says, if you partake unworthily, you're, bringing, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. So we also have a concern not only to protect the Lord's table and its honor, but to protect the person from what they might do to themselves. Okay? And, and how do we know this is true? Do we see it manifested? I don't know. There's probably stories out there. But it's because it's what the Bible says. Right? Uh, so we're going to develop this idea of not just anybody can partake. And if that's the case, we have to know who's presenting themselves, who just shows up. We never met him before, don't know anything about them. Okay? Uh, let me explain more. Bottom of page 195. As the visible church is a mixed multitude, there are those who partake while actually receiving no spiritual benefit because it's not of faith. They're just going through the motions, but they're not having faith in Christ in it. Notice that ignorant persons may not partake. Unlike baptism, children must be able to express that they understand the basics of the faith and what is going on in the Lord's Supper. So, for instance, that's why Abraham, he's been baptized, uh, but he's going through this class now, not to become a member, but to graduate into what we call communicant membership status. So you're going to see in our membership roles, any standard Reformed Presbyterian church will speak of who are our members or how many members, and will make a distinction between um, baptized members, which is children who are members recognized in baptism, 
but not yet partaking of the Lord's Supper. And then we just speak of communicant members. And those are people who have gone through uh, not necessarily such a formal class, just like anybody joining our church. It's a lot more than most churches will go through. But we're wanting to make sure they have a, a pretty well-informed faith and understanding what they're doing to partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, and so when we have a person joining or visiting who's a member somewhere else or in Abraham's case going to want to start taking the Lord's Supper will meet and we want to hear about their own understanding of their faith in Christ we want to know we want to know of course they're a member of the visible church but also we want to understand their understanding of the elements if they think it's literally the blood and body of Christ we're going to say we don't want you to partake yet okay or if they think they're coming and they're worthy of God's blessing and it has nothing to do with forgiveness of sin, we're going to, oh, you need to wait. You know, if they, if they think they're going to come just because that's what you're supposed to do, we want to make sure they know what they're doing. Okay? As well, those who are engaged in open sin, either in doctrine or practice, must not be admitted until there is repentance and restoration. It will damn them. And so the Protestant Reformed Presbyterian Church practices what we call self-session-controlled uh, communion. Now, let me say this, because I don't think I actually speak to it here. I think we'll get into it next week with church government. I'm sure we will. Yes, we will. One of the steps of church discipline is banning from the Lord's Supper. First admonition, then rebuke. Uh, and, and if they're in an office, probably suspension from office, but then suspension of the Lord's Supper. And that comes before excommunication. Uh, but suspension of the Lord's Supper is, uh, demonstrates that there is a privilege to this. There's a, there's a formal recognition of membership and that there is a right of the leadership of the church to withhold, uh, depending on what's going on. Uh, we can't have, it's, it's kind of like this. If a kid's being really, really, really bad at dinner or they need to be disciplined, sometimes you say, you can go to your room. You will not be having dinner with us tonight, right? There's an aspect of you've got to get your act right before you just can sit down and pretend that we're having good fellowship here, Right? Uh, as one example. You know, not everybody in the neighborhood sits down and has dinner with us, right? I mean, not that we might not have visitors, and, but there's, a, there's an aspect of this is a family meal. And uh, Ken Golden, I have some footnotes from him a lot about that. Um, so this is something we called session-controlled communion. I'm not sure this has really kept people away from the church, uh, as I've spoken of requiring infant baptism and requiring honoring the Lord's Day is. Uh, but it is something that people sometimes are kind of surprised about, concerned about. I appreciate that uh, Mrs. Corson said she really appreciated that we have this practice here. It's like, can you talk to some other people for us, please? <laughs> you know. But it's uh, I, I just got an email recently from a pastor. You remember Doug um, Douglas Duma, who was here. He has the Appalachian Trail Ministry. He's also a pastor in the um, what is it? The no, the Berean Presbyterian Church. I forget what it's called. He's in New York. And he's in a rural area. He says, do you have this problem? We have people so mad at us saying such nasty things to us and about me because of this. We have a session-controlled communion. How do you try to communicate about it? He says, oh, yeah, we get that. I said, we have it in the bulletin. We have it on our website. We, anytime we have a visitor, I read it ahead of time before we start. Um, you know, it's, it's a common challenge. And I'll give you a lot of resources about why, about why we do that. But what you're hearing in this section is why we have session-controlled communion. Anybody just can't show up and start taking communion. We don't know anything about them, right? Okay. Uh, we only allow communicant members of our church to partake along with visitors who first meet with session to demonstrate that they are baptized communicant members of a visible church in good standing and thus worthy to partake. And they need to also be able to explain 
their understanding of their salvation uh, and that it's by Christ, not by works, and also their understanding of the elements, as I said. Now, here's a very important thing to recognize. What did I ask you to pay attention tonight when I read Matthew 26? What is the supper called? The Passover. It's not called the Lord's Supper, but it clearly is the Lord's Supper that Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 11, right? He is taking the Passover meal and transforming it into the Lord's Supper because, just like baptism, he has come. No more shedding of blood. The significance of the sacrament needs to remain, but the details of it have to change to recognize and and adjust to the fact that Christ has come. Uh, And uh, notice that Therefore, the Lord's Supper is the continuation of the Passover meal. It's just been changed in some details for the New Testament because he's come. Why is that important? Exodus 12 and Joshua 5, a person had to be uh, committed to be able to commune. That is, another phrase is, this is fencing the table. When I say committed to commune, no one was allowed to partake of the Passover if they had not first been circumcised. And actually... Uh, the ladies couldn't do this, but it was figure, uh, federal representation. But a man, a sojourner, someone who's not technically a Jew, is allowed to become a Jew, admitted to the visible church, if they're going to be circumcised. But if they don't become circumcised and show themselves committed to and identified as God's people in the church now, then they may not partake of the benefit that is only for the people of the church. That's very clear in Joshua 5 and Exodus 12. That's the rules of the Passover meal. You have to have the sacrament of admission to the church if you want to partake of the sacrament of communion in the church. Okay? And so it's a very logical connection. I think a lot of the problem is most Christians barely know their Bibles today. I heard a preacher last night on the Christian radio say when I was driving home, he says, you know, it used to be when I preached back in the 1800s, and he was joking, you know, a California preacher uh, but a long time ago, early in his ministry, he said, used to be, if I referred to a lot of biblical things, people knew what I was talking to. People had some kind of a biblical knowledge. Noah, Adam, they knew what these things meant. He says, nowadays, they don't. They do not know what it means. I can't count on people to know what Adam and Eve mean or Noah. They have, they're so biblically illiterate. And I think that's still pretty true of most of the church. So therefore, they don't understand the connection of the Passover meal with the Lord's Supper, just as they don't understand the connection of circumcision with baptism. They don't understand that the Lord's Supper is, a, is the last Passover meal and carries its meaning with it. So all of a sudden, everybody can't just come take of it, right? Okay. Uh, top of page 196. Another phrase for session-controlled communion is fencing the table. And by the way, when I explain our practice, we're actually very liberal about it. We're not as tough as we probably should be. Uh, a lot of Reformed churches are much more careful than we are. Okay? Uh, this is against the idea of what we call open communion. Uh, we should remember that Jesus privately shared his supper with a select group of people, right? It was the upper room. There wasn't a lot of people there. It was a private, small group of people. Oh, he preached and healed the masses, but it was a small group of people he had the Lord's Supper with. That doesn't mean we have to restrict it to such numbers, but it's a point that it wasn't this open meal to everyone. It was this private Passover meal. Ken Golden explains, Christ has fulfilled the covenant requirements so that we can dine at his table, but we must still respond. Conditions must still be met. In ecclesiastical circles, that means church circles, this is called fencing the table. But we'll call it family expectations. 
They are required for us to participate in the sacrament. One must first join the family. I mean, imagine if somebody shows up to your door, hey, I'm here for dinner. Who are you? <laughs> well, I'm just, I just wanted to eat. And I saw the light on and figured the door was unlocked. I could come and eat. Why would you make that assumption? <laughs> you know, maybe we'll befriend them, try to win them, go ahead and sit down and eat. But, you know, you don't just show up to somebody's house and expect to be fed at their table if you don't even know the people made no commitment or have no relationship with them, right? I'm pretty sure most of us, most of the world will do, what are, you, what are you doing? Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to scriptures related to hospitality, but I think you get the idea. I'll go on to quote uh, Ken Golden. For Christians, this happens, this family meal happens through the sacrament of baptism. That sacrament of joining God's family must precede the sacrament of partaking the family meal. Since the Lord's Supper is the family meal of the church, one needs to join the family before partaking. The Lord's Supper is a visible church ordinance. For that reason, only members of a visible church in good standing should be allowed to partake. Self-examination doesn't exclude the decisions of church officers. The church still has a responsibility to judge its own, especially when its members are blind to their sins. Okay, so for instance, just for sake of illustration, let's say we have a member in the church, and we don't, but let's say we do, who is just committing adultery and everybody knows it. What would you think of your session to allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper ongoing? That'd be horrible, right? It'd be an offense. That needs to be fixed. That needs to be repented of. It needs to be changed. They need to be banned of the Lord's Supper, okay? If somebody's committing horrendous public sins or denying basic gospel and saying Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, well, then you don't need to partake of the Lord's Supper, friend. And I won't call it your brother until that changes, okay? So you get the ideal, the idea. Yes, people think when they read 1 Corinthians 11, well, it's self-examination. Yeah, but that doesn't rule out that dad has a right to determine who's allowed to sit down at the family table and eat with the family, right? And he has a right to excuse someone who's going to be offensive and disrespectful of what's happening here and of the family and of the church family. Here's another thing I think that the church misses. Church is not about individual salvation. That is a means to the end. Salvation is for discipleship. Disciples are to serve Jesus Christ in his kingdom and do whatever he commands. That's the Great Commission in Matthew at the end, right? And it's all about what? Remember, it's a horizontal thing. Communion is a, is a corporate thing. It is a communion of the saints thing. Church is about one another, which is why we have so many scriptures telling us how to get along and work together. Which is why you can't go have your own private communion by yourself with your private priest, right? But I think another problem with why everybody thinks you can just come and go as you please and there doesn't need any to be formal. I mean, a lot of churches don't even believe in membership. That's one of the challenges we've had. People think they're Calvinists now, but they don't really understand reform and all that's involved in it. What do you mean you have church membership? What do you mean I can't just start taking the Lord's Supper? Well, we got to know where you are with the Lord. You got to know where you are with his body and church. Where's your membership? Oh, I don't have membership. Well, you need to be a member of a visible church somewhere. We hope it's ours. <laughs> you know, let's work on it. But I think a lot of people just don't understand church in the scriptures, and they think it's an individual salvation thing. Get out of hell, get out of hell free, and then move on. It's about a commitment to the body of Christ, right? It's about a being part of the whole. And I think that's missed on a lot of Christians too. And I think it's also just a relation, a related incompleteness of understanding the Bible and the way the scriptures are not. Um, well understood and taught. This same preacher, 
while I appreciated that point, he completely missed. He was saying how people don't know their Bibles anymore, but what he did with the verse he was preaching in Acts, he missed. He never even commented on all of the Old Testament verses being quoted in that text. And he was actually saying, you got to dumb down your preaching and understand your audience and therefore not really say a whole lot they wouldn't understand. Were we never supposed to talk about Adam? How we preach the gospel in Romans and 1 Corinthians, the first Adam, the second Adam. You have to teach them to know these things, right? But what was ironic to me is he was missing the fact of all of the Old Testament scriptures being preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2. He never commented on them. I don't know if he knew them or not. Psalm 16, Joel chapter 2. Psalm 110, you know. Okay, because all those things bring a lot of meaning. And that's why we're spending so much time studying the scriptures uh, assisted by the standards to know them well, to know the whole counsel of God. So that these things are really easy to see and recognize and benefit from as the entire church for most of its history has. And the Westminster standards well preserved for us. All right, some closing comments and then I'm going to give you some Thomas Watson. I, I always like to hang that at the end to, keep you here. No, I'm just joking, but I know that's always a blessing. So I got some Thomas Watson, but first, some closing comments, and this does uh, speak briefly to your question, uh, Maripa. Due to the regulative principle of worship and the relation of the meaning to mode, remember the comments on the baptism section of the mode and the meaning of these things, including the elements, we reject the practice of intinction, that is, dipping bread in one cup and consuming it instead of separating the elements. Some churches do that. I'm pretty sure some Catholic churches do that. I'm pretty sure I was in a church like that, and I didn't know any better, and I took it. I never should have. And I'm pretty sure that's what it was. It was dipped, and then you took it in your mouth. Sometimes they don't even let you touch it. The Catholic priest dips it in the wine, puts it in your mouth. Uh, But, you know, some Protestant churches, I've seen this discussion, I think, in PCA churches. Sometimes I might be wrong. I'm pretty sure I've heard this discussion, and I think that's why the note is mostly here. We don't believe it's okay to dip the bread in the wine and then give it to you all at once. Why? Regular principle of worship. That's not what Christ did. There's a meaning to the way he did it. Okay? Uh, also, we celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. It's interesting, when I was updating my notes, I said monthly. We started monthly. And that shows you how long ago since I've done a membership class uh, like this. Um, but we, we read and studied and determined we think we should be doing it weekly. Okay? Acts chapter 2 would be a good example why. I'm going to give you a, a lot of stuff in the re- suggested readings at the end if you want to study that, how we came to a conclusion on that. Uh, what I'll try to highlight is an article by yours truly <laughs> that was published this year on the, or maybe last year on the topic, which brings a lot of different stuff together. Um, uh, but again, we look to Acts as they partake every Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper. With everything else of the standard elements of worship, this is the breaking of bread which we know that means the Lord's Supper. Uh, And Calvin argued for weekly communion, too. He wanted weekly communion. Also, now here's your question. Wine, not grape juice, is served related to the regulative principle previously discussed under worship. Again, see all the articles for just suggested reading to understand these practices. Um, But but we believe that it has, uh, first, that is what Jesus used. And secondly, there is a meaning in it that uh, we strip ourselves of. One of the articles, the main ones we read, is uh, being overly wise. And uh, that's one the session really, really was finding very helpful about why we use wine. So I don't get into it in this discussion. It's one of those things I try not to have 900 more 
extra classes and I have to stop somewhere and let you read what you're interested in. However, if that's something where everybody would really like to go back to and study for a while, we can do that. Or, you know, if you're really interested, Mr. Corson, you can go read some of these articles and I can link, send you an email with links if that's helpful, okay? Uh, and it's a great question. Uh, I would say this, though, in terms of frequency. This is not addressing why it's wine and not grape juice. Definitely not water. That does, I never heard of that. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, okay, that's what you baptize with. <laughs> you know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And you could have said they could have had water at the meal, and they didn't, right? This gets to the regular principle a lot again. But in terms of frequency, I really like uh, what Dr. Richard Bacon, where we've been friends with over the years, uh, and I quote him in my article, he says, you know, some people argue we should only take the Lord's Supper infrequently because we need to spend a lot of time preparing and making it really special, you know. And if we do it all the time, it doesn't become special. We kind of forget it's, well, that, that could be true of anything, right? And um, some denominations argue even just once a year. Uh, some maybe only quarterly or twice a year. Our confession of faith has the director of public worship, and it says it should be done frequently. And I don't know how f- that works to frequently. Some Presbyterians, particularly Scottish-influenced denominations, have what are called communion seasons. But as you'll see, I refer to, I allude to in my article, I think that's more based on tradition and having to be, there's a lot of persecution and didn't have ministers all the time and you'd gather in the fields for a communion service. And by the way, you had to produce a covenant coin. You had to produce, you had to produce something that proved you were a member of the visible church. Couldn't just show up and expect to be served otherwise. But I think it was infrequent more because of the historical situation. But then that becomes almost a tradition. Uh, but it's not what we see in the scriptures. But I, I think this is worth belaboring the point. Uh, let me ask my wife, Fernanda, to make our kissing really special. She's like, where are you going with this? You know? <laughs> All right, just to break the ice. Okay, to make our kissing, that sounded like I was calling an animal. I'm sorry. To make our kissing really special, would it be a good idea if we only kissed on New Year's Eve? And the rest of the year, we don't kiss. Because if we kiss frequently, it's not going to become special anymore. It's going to be something we just get too used to. Is that a good idea? She's like, "Uh uh-uh. So I I, I sort of secretly got her to admit she likes to kiss me. (laughs) No, okay, just kidding. But the thing is, is I like to kiss her. Now, just because we like to kiss frequently, does that make it less special? No, actually, when you do something regularly, it's what makes it special. You can kind of lose the heat and the love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15... You know, don't stay away from each other too, too long, you know. You keep the fire burning, right, you know. That's one of the problems, you know. We want to encourage people to wait until they're married and start kissing. It's hard to stop, right, you know. It's not that it becomes unspecial. It becomes unspecial if there's not love in it, right. And I like how Dr. Bacon says, it's not frequency that makes it special. It's the heart and devotion that makes it special. Now, that being said, I want to warn us and challenge us all to make sure we do come and not forget our first love as we come to the Lord's Supper. That we don't come to, because we take it weekly, there is the danger of not preparing very much and getting familiar and rote with it. And that's the danger we all face. But it's the same danger of coming to worship every week, but we're not going to say come to worship once a year. Why? Because we're told to come weekly on the Lord's Day, right? So we have to prepare for the Sabbath, and our catechisms tell us not only how to prepare for the Sabbath, but how we should prepare for the Lord's Supper, okay? Come worthily to the Lord's Supper. That doesn't mean we're worthy in ourselves. Yeah, Fernanda. Yeah. Fasting, yeah. 
Right. Yeah, so that's similar to some Presbyterian churches, especially of a Scottish background. Oh, I'm sorry, Gabriel, I forgot to call on you. Hold it, and I'll call on you next, okay? Um, yeah, and, and we don't think that's very biblical, looking at Acts chapter 2. And again, um, you can look at my article I wrote. I mean, I know you're just volunteering. That was your experience. Uh, but you might want to read it, my love, because it's called A Frequent Expression of Love. That's my article name for why we do it frequently. But, um, but we do have to be careful that we do prepare ourselves, right? We can't necessarily prepare ourselves the same way with the communion season. On the other hand, what does it help us do? Prepare ourselves to live for the Lord every week. We can go a long time. Oh, sis, the communion service is coming up. We better get our act together. And I remember Tim, uh, uh, Tim Alley said he really appreciated what I think I've said in some sermons about why we do it frequently elsewhere. He says, I really appreciate we do it weekly because I'm thinking ahead to the next supper and how I want to approach my Lord. I want to get my act together. I want to keep working on myself because I know I'm going to be having a supper with my Lord. Try to think if you're approaching your family and your father at the table and every week you're going behind his back like Absalom doing all kinds of... You'd probably stop coming to the meal because you just don't want to face him, right? This is the real danger if we're going to keep the illusion going or the illustration going. When husbands and wives don't eat at the table together, when they all of a sudden are not together all the time, that's a danger, right? We have to have frequent time together. And... Uh, but on the other hand, if I show up and, hey, honey, good night, you know, I don't think you would like that either, right? You kind of like it when I pause and kind of know where I am and I give you a nice kiss that's expressing I'm actually liking to kiss you and I want to see you, and then I start snoring, right? <laughs> but, you know, frequency isn't what makes it special, but we do have to be careful that if we get too familiar, we can neglect the appreciation of our loved one and jesus says in rome in revelation you've forgotten your first love so may the lord protect us from that and help us to prepare and there's no reason we can't be preparing every week for the lord's supper and wow what our weeks in our life would be like that if we getting ready every week to have a meal with the king of kings eh? all right on that note let me get to the watson quotes and close because uh, he says it pretty good sorry gabriel you had your hand up what did you want to ask David protected the Israelites, yes, fighting Goliath. He is loving the books we brought home from church on David and Goliath. He's swinging everything in the house right now. <laughs> Not really everything, but I catch him like, well, I said, what are you doing? I'm David. <laughs> okay, uh, glad you're here, buddy. So cl some closing thoughts by Thomas Watson on the Lord's Supper. And just like baptism, this is in, is in his section called The Way of Salvation. From the book, The Ten Commandments, Thomas Watson. The Lord's Supper is the most spiritual and sweetest ordinance that ever was instituted. Here, we have to do more immediately with the person of Christ. In prayer, we draw nigh to God. In the sacrament, we become one with him. In prayer, we look up to Christ. In the sacrament, by faith, we touch him. In the word preached, we hear Christ's voice. In the sacrament, we feed, upon, we feed on him. We dress ourselves when we come to the table of some great monarchs. So when we are going to the table of the Lord, we should dress ourselves by holy meditation and heart consideration. It is a visible sermon. How unseemly is it to see any come to these holy elements having hearts leavened with pride, covetousness, covetousness or envy. These, 
with Judas received the devil in the sop and are no better than the crucifiers of the Lord of glory. That's the scary thing. He says, if you come to the Lord unworthily with pride and you don't think you need mercy and you're acting like you deserve, he says, you're actually fellowshipping with the devil in the supper, not with Jesus. That's scary. Top of page 197, more from Thomas Watson on the Lord's Supper. Eating shows the infinite delight the believing soul has in Christ. Eating is a grateful and ple- is is grateful and pleasing to the palate. So feeding on Christ by a lively faith is delicious. Eating denotes nourishment. So eating Christ's flesh and drinking His blood is nutritive to the soul. The taking of the cup denotes the redundancy of merit in Christ and the fullness of our redemption by Him. He not only took the bread. But the cup, I love that he's bringing that out. Why not intention? Why separate in careful study of the bread and the wine? Well, I would say bread representing the body, wine representing the soul saves us both. That's particularly important because the blood represents the life. But also the redundancy of it. Hey, I'm going to tell you by showing you the bread, I've saved you. I'm going to repeat myself and now I'm going to serve you the wine. I'm going to be redundant with the same meaning. I've saved you. Body and soul. It is an ordinance appointed to confirm our faith, strengthened. Christ's intercession is made available to us by virtue of his death. Our remembering his death in the sacrament must be, first of all, a mournful remembrance. Zechariah 12.10, they um, uh, wept, uh, looked at, they looked at him and mourned. Uh, it must second, though, be a joyful remembrance. So it needs to be a, a mournful re- remembrance of our sin, but a joyful remembrance over our forgiveness. He says, this ordinance of the supper is an earnest of heaven. It's like a down payment is what he means. Guarantee. God has appointed the sacrament on purpose to cheer and revive a sad heart. When we look on our sins, we have cause to mourn. But when we see Christ's blood shed for our sins, we rejoice. To see Christ crucified for us is a means to crucify sin in us. Grace is like a lamp, which, if it be not often fed with oil, is apt to go out. Uh, that relates to the frequency concern. Revelation 3.2 How then do they sin against God who come but very seldom to this ordinance. God's table should be guarded, that the profane should not come near. See that, Exodus 12, 12. In primitive times, after sermon was done, and the Lord's Supper was about to be celebrated, an officer stood up and cried, Holy things for holy men! And then several of the congregation departed. I wonder if that's literally part of the membership or people who were not. Uh, The wicked do not eat Christ's flesh, but tear it. They do not drink his blood, but spill it. To come to such an ordinance slightly without examination is to come in an undue manner and is like eating the Passover raw. Stop and think, what is he talking about? What's the Passover? Before Jesus turns it into the Lord's Supper, what do they eat? Not bread, the lamb. So he says, if you come to the Passover, or come to the Lord's Supper without really preparing, it's like you're eating the lamb uncooked. It's like you're going to eat raw fresh, raw flesh, 
which is extremely unpleasant and misses the whole purpose, right? It won't be what it's supposed to be. We are to pray that this great ordinance may be poison to our sins and food to our graces. Christ received a right sacramentally is a universal medicine for healing and a universal cordial for cheering our distressed souls. Beloved, let's remember this and prepare ourselves better. I encourage you to go to the catechism this week and and go back to this confession and spend extra time preparing for the Lord's Supper that you'd receive more blessing out of it. Just as if you don't come to dinner prepared well, maybe you you ate too much or you ate too little or... Uh, you know, you didn't clean up after hard work and you're sweaty. If you don't come prepared, you don't get the same benefit from the meal. Let us uh, prepare ourselves that we would benefit from the meal more this week. And let's prepare each week to come to meet with the King of glory and remember what he did for us. He said, as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, uh, you, do show, you do show the Lord's death until he come. Okay. Before we close in prayer... You'll notice there's a number of articles on restricted communion and uh, why do we interview before we allow people to partake. Uh, some by the Free Church of Scotland, Free Church Presbyterian Scotland, uh, Free Presbyterian Church Scotland. One's by John Murray and his collected writings. That's in our library if you want to read it. Um, the Lord's Supper by Gordon Ketty. He's a great minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. I knew, I know him. Uh, I don't think he'd remember me, but. I've had reason to know him. And uh, that's a very good little book. I have it in my, li- my library. Eating and Drinking with God is an excellent book. That's published by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. have it in my library if you'd like to borrow it. Some, this article by Pastor Bacon, um, sadly it's hard to find his stuff online anymore. I give you links, but I find they're less and less working. But I do quote him in my article. Uh, you see a few more things. I have, um, uh, so Maripa, the one that says, Wine in the Communion Cup. By Marian Lovett, the other one, the Westminster Standards, well, the Frequency of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Danger of Being Overwise, Wine and Communion by William Sprague. That particularly was an article that Session just felt like, yeah, that's very obvious. That's, you don't put something else but wine in the cup. So those articles are there. And like I say, if you ever want me to do a lesson on that for a week or two, I'd be happy to do it. Um, but again, I just can't do it all in this class one. I'd be able to let you guys partaken. Um, but I'm trying to give you anything you might have. I try to anticipate those questions if I can't get to it all. Okay, And then uh, I would encourage you to look at that article about why we have weekly communion. It's called A Frequent Expression of Love. And uh, it's on Reformation 21. And it's really a culmination of a lot of thinking and studying and preaching about it over the years and bringing in Dr. Bacon's work and Ken Golden's and others. Anytime I do an article like that, I intend it to be very thorough. So um, hopefully that would be very helpful for you if you want to think more about the frequency issue. Those other articles, I've not written directly on uh, why we use wine, but those other articles are what we studied to determine that's all that we should be doing. Okay? Uh, David Gordon is another great one. I, actually, I quote him too in the article, Why Weekly Communion. That's an article on the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's website, originally in a, in a magazine. And then we have free audio lectures. Uh, they're not ours. Feedingonchrist.com slash Theology of the Lord's Supper. There's a really good discussion there you can listen to about the frequency. Uh, one other thing I want to point to you uh, on the top of page 198, and then I'll give the instructions for next time. And I just want to point to you this footnote at the end. It's actually very significant, but I'm not going to get into it a lot because it, it kind of gets particularly to seminary-level discussion or just guys who really want to 
analyze all the details. It's not unimportant, but I don't want to kill a lot of time. It could be its own class, okay? But Calvin and Westminster on the Lord's Supper, exegetical considerations, I, uh, I, that's by Wayne Spear. And uh, I should be giving you the, uh, the link to it. It's a lecture. I'm going to make a note here to make sure I have the direct lecture, but you can actually buy it through the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. It was a lecture by Dr. Wayne Spear a long time ago. I shouldn't say a long time ago, but uh, Mrs. Uh, Raglan used to be her pastor at the Reformed Presbyterian Church in town. And um, he's dealing with something really intriguing. It's about, well, we're denying the literal presence of the body and blood of the Lord in the elements. But then Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, the, the reformer, the Swiss reformer, really emphasized that it's just a remembering. That's all it is. So in response to that, most of the reformers, especially Calvin, talk about, no, Christ is really present in the supper. But then that gets challenging how to discuss. Well, he's really present in the supper, but he's not in the elements. It's by faith. You know, It gets kind of difficult to, what exactly do you mean by that? Most reformed people are going to push the way of Calvin. I really appreciate Dr. Spear demonstrating that the Westminster standards are allowing for Calvin's view on this nuance of the discussion. Not unimportant, uh, but not enough I want to try to get into it in this class. But I want you to know about it if some of you want to drill down on stuff like this. Okay. Um, whereas the Westminster standards, while allowing it, are really demonstrating that it, they use the word of commemoration and memorial. They really seem to emphasize that. And I don't think we need to feel like the Zwinglian view of things is such an atrocity as I think it can tend to be treated. Because we recognize it is remembering. What does Jesus say? What does this table say? This do in remembrance of me. We are remembering what happened in his body and blood, the bread and wine reminding us of that. And yes, he's with us, present, serving the meal in our presence, just as he has preaching, just as he was present preaching and just as he was present serving the meal, there's a special fellowship with him in it as opposed to just our other individual walk with Christ in personal devotions. So the footnote, and I realize I need to uh, try to give a direct link, but you can get it on reformedresources.org if you really want to listen to it. It is a pretty nuanced discussion, but it's an excellent one for who any, anyone who really wants to think about that more. Okay? Uh, I'm not going to ask us to think more about it tonight, but I'll answer your question. Yeah. What was that Reformedresources.org. And the title you can search is Calvin and Westminster on the Lord's Supper, Essegetical Considerations. And it's part of, a, it's part of an annual conference at my seminary. I, I think I was there at it years ago. And, and uh, it's, I've seen other people refer to this lecture as really a good answer to this question. Uh, about what do our Westminster standards, what are they really saying or not saying, and how does it line up with this Calvin versus Wingley thing that I, I personally think is a little bit overdone. Uh, anyhow, yeah, if you're interested, reformresist.org, and if you have trouble finding it, let me know, I'll find it for you. It gives me a chance to remember how to use the tool, because it's, it's part of my other employer, so it's part of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. So if you have any trouble, let me know, okay? That'll also help me remember to get the full uh, information how to find it uh, on my notes. Okay, next week, August 10th, we're going to study just chapter 30 of the Confession of Church Censors. That means church discipline, okay? We've already studied church and uh, touched on government, but this is going to specifically deal with the part of church government that relates to discipline, okay? And... Uh, what are the three marks of a true church? They taught me in seminary, and you'll hear people say this all the time. The proper preaching of the word, 
proper administration of the Lord's of the sacraments, and thirdly, church discipline. And I remember my professor in seminary say that, and then he said, "How many real churches are out there? Do you think?" Implying not a whole lot of church discipline today. It's no fun, and the elders would say, "Amen," <laughs> but we consider it serious what we have to do with the Lord. Um, I've written on this a number of times, and you'll, I think I'll have that listed next week for the Alliance. And actually, I was invited, I just got an email today to follow up. Uh, I was invited by somebody with um, Reformation Heritage Books to do a review, a, 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 an endorsement on the back cover of some books on church government that they're bringing back to modern print. And actually, it's because they saw all that I've written about this topic of church discipline for the Alliance on, on uh placefortruth.org. So uh, I'll, I'll try to make sure I have those articles mentioned in here next time because it's been a while since I've taught the class. But um, uh, I think that just kind of recognize. I was surprised they chose me. I'm like, how do you even know about me? I'm sure there's other people that have talked about church discipline that know better. But I think it's something that people aren't talking or writing about a lot. And uh, I remember, this is a setup for next time, when we were at a Presbyterian meeting once or twice, I remember the other elders of other churches when we would give church reports, very often lamenting how the other sessions, even of Presbyterian Reformed churches, just don't do their jobs as it relates to discipline and the proper way we're supposed to handle someone trying to often run from discipline joining another church. You know, oh, yeah, we'll take you, no questions asked. And then we send a letter to the other church. Oh, by the way, they've joined a church. What? They're under discipline. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's supposed to be a way of doing that. So we'll look at the steps of discipline, and uh, that's next week. And then the following week, we're going to look at the higher courts of the church, of church councils. And then the last week, we'll look at the last two chapters of the Confession relating to end times theology and really what this is all about, right? And all this is leading to where we're going in the end of it all when Christ is coming back. But that will give adequate attention to the discussion of millennial views, which is a big one out there, right? So, uh, and uh, it's one I will preach with great fervor and passion, I believe strongly in my view. (laughs) But I'll tell you about the other views and what the standards allow for, okay? Uh, With that, let's close in prayer. Just a reminder, next week we do have class two weeks from now we don't i'll be taking vacation so while i'd like to have church councils right next to church censors we'll have to split it up one week with my vacation so thanks for tolerating that but we're getting near the end i encourage you who are taking the class formally good time to try to catch up on reading or listening online if you started later because we'll have a little break there thanks for your time let's close in prayer our father in heaven we thank you so much for the lord jesus christ who took on our flesh and a reasonable soul to pay for our sins on the cross. And we thank you for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, carrying over the meaning of the Passover meal, that because of the blood of the Lamb, death passes over us, your church. We know it's only for truly for the invisible church, true believers, worthy receivers, and we pray that you would make us all that, and that you would help us to prepare well as we would come to the table of our King this Lord's Day and fellowship with him face to face, as it were, preparing for his return at any moment when, they, when we then look forward to partaking with him literally face to face at the great supper of the Lamb. Lord, use this means of grace in our church to feed our faith, to grow us in grace, to protect us from living a week that forgets about you, but rather anticipates fellowship with you again. And Lord, let us remember you and be so thankful. And we do express to you, Lord, thank you for the shedding of your blood. Thank you for the breaking of your body. Thank you for bearing hell for eternity on the cross for us and applying your blood 
after your resurrection and ascension in the true Holy of Holies, representing we always have access and communion with God. We pray thanksgiving through the Lord Jesus Christ and all your people said, Amen.